Well, as followers of Christ, as Christians, every single one of us, without exception, has been given a supernatural gift from God for the express purpose of serving other followers of Christ. Did you know that? Every one of us has a gift from God, and they're not all the same, by the way. We each have different gifts, but we all have a gift, and whatever it might be, that gift was given to you to enable you to serve the body of Christ, the church, to serve your fellow Christians. The Apostle Paul said, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, Romans 12, 4 through 8. In his letter to the Corinthian Christians, he wrote, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each, that would be each one of us, is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. The Apostle Peter wrote, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another. He's talking about one another in the church here. Without grumbling, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Again, one another being a reference to your fellow believers, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 10. You see, not one of us, not one of us gets a free pass. There isn't one single Christian on this planet who God looked at and said, yeah, I created everyone and gifted everyone individually to serve my people. But you, you're the exception. For you, it's enough to just believe in me, maybe hang out with some other Christian friends on Sundays. Nope. There isn't one single example of that in all of Scripture. Every single one of us has a gift from God that we were given to be used in the service of other Christians, which is in part what the Great Commission is all about, by the way. That moment when Jesus called out his people to do more than just believe, but to actually go out and make disciples. In other words, <clears throat> he called us to spread the gospel to the unbelieving world when he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we're called to evangelize the unbelieving world. And then the second part of that great commission says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. That is the part where we serve one another, the body, where we serve the church. Because once people become believers and followers of Jesus Christ, once they're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? We then have a responsibility to the ongoing lifelong process of discipleship. That's what it truly means to make disciples, you see. We're not just making converts to the Christian faith. 
we're making disciples of Jesus Christ, which means each one of us should always be in a relationship where we are being discipled by someone else, and each one of us should always be in a relationship where we are being discipled, excuse me, where we are discipling someone else, both directions, because that is our calling to make disciples, and not one of us is exempt from that calling. People uh, often ask the pastor, hey, how do I know what my calling is? Well, your calling is the exact same as mine and every other believer on this earth. Your calling is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, how you accomplish that calling, right? Your spiritual job description, if you will. Well, that's different for all of us, depending on the varieties of gifts, the varieties of service, the varieties of activities that we've been given by God to partake in, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 12 that we just read. But look, the calling itself is the same for every one of us. We're all called to make disciples, and that is not optional, right? It's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission. It is our highest calling, and in fact, it is a holy calling. Paul explains it in his second letter to Timothy where he writes, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to what? A holy calling, not only because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. So if you're a Christian, then you have a holy calling on your life which has been there since long before you were. And it is a calling to make disciples of Christ by the power of God using the supernatural gifts that he's given you. In other words, long before you were born, you were set apart by God for this very purpose, to fulfill his holy calling, which means then it is of the utmost importance for every follower of Jesus Christ to understand exactly what your life is supposed to look like when you answer that call. Because I'm telling you in the modern church today, in many cases, we've reduced this idea of being set apart down to nothing more than simply believing in Jesus Christ and then hanging out with our Christian friends on Sundays, when actually being set apart is a mandate by God for every single one of us to live lives that are starkly, shockingly, undeniably different from the rest of humanity. To the point that when people encounter us, there should never be any doubt in their minds whatsoever that we are followers of Christ because it is unmistakably clear by simply watching how we live and behave and talk and conduct our daily lives that we are definitely wholly different than everyone else in the world. You understand, that is actually God's expectation for his people, for each one of us to live our lives set apart for him, set apart from the rest of the population, not separated, set apart, set in contrast with, so that it will be blatantly obvious to those who don't follow Christ who the followers of Christ actually are and just how different life actually is when you choose to follow him. The Apostle Peter said of those of us who follow Jesus, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You see, it's so important that we understand just how differently we are to live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Why? So that the world actually sees a tangible difference in the human beings they encounter who claim to follow Jesus in contrast from everyone else in the world who claims there's no good reason to follow Jesus. Because when they see that difference, which should be on display among the body more than any place between believers as we serve one another as the church. When the world sees us using our gifts to serve one another in the way God called us to, they will flock to the church in mass wanting to become disciples themselves. And listen, if you don't believe that, just read Acts 2. You will see that is exactly what happens when we do more than just believe and hang out with our friends on Sunday. When we actively and purposefully live out our calling every day in front of a watching world. So we're going to take a closer look at this today. What it means to be set apart by God as we continue our sermon series working our way through the book of Judges. As we've now come to the final judge in the book. This story of how God sets him apart from everyone else is such a powerful lesson for us about God's expectations for people today when he calls us out of the kingdom of this world and sets us apart to serve the kingdom of heaven. So let's jump back into the story at chapter 13. This is after Jephthah judged Israel for six years, which we looked at last week where he had great success over their enemies, the Ammonites, in chapter 11. And then in verses, uh, the first seven verses of chapter 12, Jephthah actually fights against his fellow Israelites from the tribe of Ephraim, who rose up against Jephthah, which um, incidentally is the same clan who rose up against Gideon back in chapter 8, a clan of Israel. And interestingly, after Jephthah defeats them in chapter 12, the Ephraimites never again play an important role in Israel's history after that. It underscores the importance of God's people maintaining unity among us as we serve one another with the gifts that he's given us and how serious it is to God when we do the opposite, when we sow division among his people, when we say and do things that actually divide his church. For the Ephraimites, it meant irrelevance among the other tribes for the rest of their days. And then in the remainder of chapter 12, there's a brief mention of three more judges who judged Israel for a total of 25 years combined, which leads us now to chapter 13 in the story of Samson. So let's read it together, beginning with the first seven verses. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Surprise! So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb 
and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, The man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So at this point in Israel's history, it's the beginning of the 11th century B.C., about 50 years uh, before Saul becomes king, by the way. The Israelites have now been oppressed by the Philistines for the past 40 years because in keeping with the pattern they've displayed throughout uh, the period of the judges, the Israelites have once again turned away from God. And so in response, God gave them over to their enemies, the Philistines, for 40 years. And so now in keeping with God's pattern of faithfulness, in spite of uh, the unfaithfulness of his own people, he's about to send a deliverer, another judge to free them in the most unlikely way. He chooses a barren woman, the wife of a Danite named Manoah, a woman who has been unable to have children her entire life. God chooses her of all people to be the mother of Israel's next judge. And so the angel of the Lord shows up, which is to say the Messiah shows up in the form of a man. Okay, this angel of the Lord is a, a, a theophany, a visible manifestation of the Messiah himself in human form, which we see in other parts of the Bible, like the first 15 verses of Genesis 18, where he shows up and prophesies the birth of Isaac to Sarah, another otherwise barren woman. However, Manoah's wife doesn't realize who this actually is yet, because in verse 6 she refers to the angel of the Lord as a man of God. And throughout the Old Testament, that designation, man of God, was the specific name given by the Israelites to their prophets. It's how they described their own prophets. And so at this point, Manoah's wife believes she's encountered a prophet of God, having no idea she's actually encountering God himself. And he tells her that she's going to have a child. And not only that, but this child will be the one who shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And remember, at this point, the Israelites have been oppressed by the Philistines for 40 years. So uh, this is not only welcome news from the personal perspective that this woman will no longer have to bear the shame of being barren, which was seen as a divine curse in the ancient Near East, but this was also welcome news for the entire nation of Israel who was starting to buckle under the heavy hand of the Philistines. And so the angel of the Lord tells this woman that her son is to be set apart by God for a life of service to God's people, which in the Old Testament often came in the form of a Nazarite vow. Generally speaking, the Nazarite vow, which is described in number six, by the way, was to be a voluntary commitment by either a man or a woman for a limited time for the purpose of separating themselves to God, which we'll come back to in a moment. It was a vow that involved three stipulations. First was abstinence from wine or anything else associated with the vine, uh, anything made from grapes, also any other strong drink, which was fermented alcohol made from other fruits uh, or honey or even grain, number six, three, and four. Second was no cutting of the hair, number six, five. And third was no contact with the dead, number six, six through eight, even family members. Interestingly, although the Nazarite vow was generally voluntary and for a limited time, it was neither for Samson, who was designated by God himself as a Nazarite from the womb to the day of his death. Just as a side note, 
Uh, we only know of two other people in the Bible who were Nazarites under similar circumstances. Samuel, who was uh, also a judge of Israel, and John the Baptist as well. When, when Samuel was born, he was committed to a lifetime under the Nazarite vow by his mother Hannah, who, like Manoah's wife, was barren, and so she prayed to the Lord that if he will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life, and no razor shall touch his head. First Samuel 1.11. It's a clear indication of the Nazarite vow. Uh, and as well, interestingly, in the Qumran, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Samuel is described as a Nazarite forever, all the days of his life. And then in Luke 1, the angel of the Lord prophesied that Elizabeth, who was also barren, would have a son named John, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, Luke 1, 15. And so like Samuel and like John, Samson is being set apart by God for a lifetime of service to God's people. In fact, if you look at the word Nazarite in verse 5 in the ancient Hebrew, it's the word Nazir, which literally means separate or to be separated. So to be a Nazarite, to be called by God, meant that you were being set apart by God to this holy calling. And if you go back and read about the Nazarite vow in number six, it says that all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Number six, eight. And so being set apart by God, both then and now, means there is to be a separation from the rest of the world in terms of our holiness. So you understand, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian today, then you are set apart by God. There are no exceptions to that. And being set apart by God means you are called to a life of holiness. Just as Samson was, just as Samuel was, just as John the Baptist was, we are called to a life of holiness. And just to be clear, holiness is not achieved in our lives by avoiding certain taboos by living a certain way according to certain rules. In fact, there is absolutely nothing that we can do in our lives to make ourselves holy. The most religious people in the history of the world have proved that beyond a shadow of a doubt. You can follow every law and every rule and live the most religiously disciplined and morally pure life and still not be holy. Wow, well, how can anyone ever be holy then? I'm glad you asked. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The word sacrifice there in the ancient Greek is the word hagiadzo. It literally means to be holy. So sanctification is holiness. Keep that in mind. We'll read it again. We have been sanctified, made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That is precisely what religion and religious behavior apart from Jesus Christ can do for you. Absolutely nothing. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool at his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You understand that's us. You and me, believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we are set apart. We are made holy only by the offering of blood, the blood of Jesus Christ that he willingly gave for us so that we might be holy. Doesn't mean, by the way, that we're sinless. It means that Jesus Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He has fully earned our holiness for us by his single sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 12 says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify, to make holy the people through his own blood. So we're called to a life of holiness when we're set apart by God, and since that holiness can come only through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, not by our own righteous deeds, that must mean then that we can now live however we want to, and it doesn't matter, right? Because Jesus makes us holy. I'll let the Apostle Paul answer that one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Romans 6, 1 and 2. You see, when we're set apart by God, the calling to live a holy life is not the means by which we are made holy, but it is our response to the God who has already made us holy. God set Samson apart. Right? Samson didn't set himself apart, but Samson was still required by God to live a life of holiness in response to being set apart by God. It's the same for us. Our holiness is what Christ offers to us. Our holy living is what we offer back to him in response to what he's done for us. So then, what does holy living look like for us today? Well, the simple answer is, Everything we do that brings honor to Christ is holy living. While anything that we do that brings dishonor to Christ is unholy living. Okay, this is a simple litmus test for every one of us to follow when it comes to living a life of holiness. When you're having a conversation with someone, ask yourself, is this conversation honoring Christ or is it dishonoring Christ? Is this relationship in my life honoring Christ or is it dishonoring Christ? Is this activity I'm engaged in, is it honoring Christ? Or is it dishonoring Christ? This, uh, this opportunity before me, will it honor Christ? Or will it dishonor Christ? Are the choices I'm making in my daily life, are they honoring Christ? Or are they dishonoring Christ? How are you choosing to respond to the gift that Jesus Christ has given to you because look how your conversations and relationships and activities and opportunities and choices how they make you feel at any given point in your life has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not they honor Christ and yet that is 
precisely the litmus test that many Christians actually use today to determine the content of their conversations and relationships and activities and opportunities and choices. How those things make them feel instead of whether or not they actually honor Christ. Listen, your feelings can get you into big trouble. Your feelings can lead you astray. Your, your feelings can betray you in the worst of ways. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his death, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. In other words, Father, this doesn't feel good to me. I don't want to do this. So if there is any other way, please release me from this requirement. But then he continues, nevertheless, not my will. Not what I want, but yours be done. Luke twenty-two forty-two. You see, Jesus' feelings could have easily led him away from the cross and the sacrifice that saved us, but he betrayed his own feelings that he might honor the Father's will instead of his own. And we are called to nothing less. Don't rely on your feelings to guide you through this life. Rather, if you will measure every conversation and every relationship and every activity and every opportunity and every choice that you make based on how Christ-honoring it is, you will actually at times find that you will have to betray your own feelings to do what honors Christ, which is not something that comes naturally to us, which is also why doing so screams to the rest of the world that there is something profoundly different about you, which is exactly what the world needs to see when they see us. Okay, living a life of holiness honors Christ. It serves the church and it testifies to the rest of the world that we are who we say we are, which is precisely what every single believer and follower of Christ is called to. No exceptions, nothing less. Let's keep reading. Verses 8 through 14. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God who you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. God listened to the voice of Manoah. The angel of God came again to the woman as, he sat, as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? He said, I am. Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or read anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So after hearing the news about their son from his wife, Manoah wants to hear it directly from what he also believes to be a prophet. He wants to hear it straight from the man of God's mouth. And so he prays that God will send the prophet back so that he can hear it for himself. Obviously, Manoah doesn't fully trust his wife enough at this point to act upon this command from the angel of the Lord based on her word alone. And knowing that, of course, the angel of the Lord does return in answer to Manoah's prayer. And yet, interestingly, he appears before Manoah's wife instead of appearing to Manoah directly. Right? He can appear wherever he wants to. It wasn't like it was random. 
or a mistake. This was not only a response to Manoah's prayer, it was probably also a response to Manoah's doubt that the angel of the Lord chooses to appear to the man's wife for a second time instead of going straight to Manoah. And so she runs and gets her husband and they return to the field together where Manoah then begins to question the angel of the Lord, asking a question that has already been answered, which is further evidence that he did not fully trust his wife, by the way. So he asks the angel of the Lord, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And of course, uh, back in verse 5, the angel of the Lord already told Manoah's wife that the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So the angel of the Lord basically ignores the question about the child, because again, he's already answered that question and wants Manoah probably to learn to trust his wife, to listen to her. And so instead, he reiterates his instructions concerning Manoah's wife to them with one addition. He says, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. Meaning she is now under the same Nazarite vow as their soon-to-be son, at least till he's born. By the way, I've repeated these instructions to you now at least three times. He says it to Manoah's wife in verses 4 and 5. He says it again in verse 7, and here directly to Manoah in verses 13 and 14, which means all that is left, all that you need to know now is to obey, to actually do what I've commanded you to do. And so he says in verse 14, all that I commanded her, let her observe. You see, being set apart by God means you're called to a life of obedience. And just like living a life of holiness, obedience doesn't earn us God's love. Obedience is our response to God already loving us, right? Jesus didn't say, I will love you if you will keep my commandments. No, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. The apostle John wrote, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. 1 John uh, 5, 3. You see, the world cannot keep God's commandments because the world does not love God. But for those of us who have been set apart by God, for those of us who love him, he gives us the ability, supernaturally I might add, to keep his commandments. The apostle Paul wrote, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. In other words, as a Christian, God will never allow you to be in a situation in life where your only option is disobedience to his commands. No, he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So if you're a follower of Christ, you can't ever say, the devil made me do it. Right? Because if you're a child of God, the devil can't make you do anything. In fact, as someone who has been set apart by God, there's only one thing in this world that can keep you from being obedient to the will of the Father. And of course, that is you. Which means if you're not currently fulfilling the call of God on your life, then you're not only being disobedient to the command of God, but the only person on the planet that you can correctly blame for that disobedience is yourself. If you're not actively making at least one disciple in your life right now, then you're not only being disobedient to the command of God in His Word, but the only person you can blame for that disobedience is yourself. 
If you have unforgiveness in your heart toward another person who has hurt you, you're not only being disobedient to the command of God, but the only person you can blame for that disobedience is yourself. Right? If you're not as close to God as you know you should be in your life right now, that disobedience to draw near to Him, you can only blame that on yourself. You get the picture. When God sets you apart for His holy calling, He never leaves you in any situation in life where you have no choice but to be disobedient to His calling. No, you always, always, always have the option to obey. And there's no one or no thing in this world that can stop you from obeying except yourself. Obedience is always one of the options on the table for every conversation, every relationship, every activity, every opportunity, and every choice that you ever make. When it comes to obeying His commands, we know that the greatest command of them all, according to Jesus, the one that all of the others are summed up in, is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And there's a second like it, love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22. 37 and 39. Those are the great commandments according to Jesus. And then the great commission, which we read earlier according to Jesus, is go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And so when it comes to living a life of obedience, if you would simply start by following the great commandments and the great commission, if you would focus on those three things first in that order, loving God with everything in you, loving other people as much as you love yourself, and making disciples by allowing that gospel to pervade every single relationship in your life. Every single relationship, no matter how brief or seemingly insignificant. If you would focus on obeying those three commands in your life first, you will quickly find that all of the other areas of your life will begin to come into alignment with God's holy calling on your life. Because you see, it's not that all the other uh, commands and teachings of Christ are unimportant. In fact, they're profoundly important. But you cannot obey any of his commands if you cannot first obey the greatest among them. And the world will take notice, by the way, when you begin to obey those greatest commands of God, it will be obvious to the world that you're set apart from the rest of the world. Because when you love God more than anything else in a world that despises Him, and when you love others as much as you love yourself in a world that says you should look out for number one first, and when you allow the gospel of Christ to influence every relationship in your life in a world that says to each his own, when your life is focused on God's greatest commands, it becomes very obvious very quickly that you are different than everyone else on this planet. And that is the way it is supposed to be. For we are called to nothing less Let's finish the story for today then, verses 15 through 20. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering and then offer it to the Lord, for Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, 
What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. The angel of the Lord said to him, why, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. When the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. So Manoah offers to make a meal for the angel of the Lord, who, of course, uh, at this point he still thinks is a prophet. And uh, making a meal for a, a visitor was actually uh, typical of the hospitality in the ancient Near East at the time. So it's not that it was a bad thing to do, particularly had this visitor been someone other than God himself. Uh, in fact, in the ancient world, sharing a meal was considered a solemn act of fellowship. And yet this was God himself, Yahweh, the creator of the universe who Manoah is offering to barbecue a goat for, right? Which is why he says to Manoah, look, I won't stay to eat your food, but I will stay if you'll worship God. And so Manoah agrees, and while preparing the offering to God, Manoah asks the angel of the Lord for his name, and the angel of the Lord replies, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Which, of course, is a response born out of reverence for his own name. But as a fascinating side note, this was also a subtle revelation by God of his true identity, at least uh, for the generations to come. If you read Isaiah 9, 6... It is a description of the Messiah which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The word wonderful in that verse and the word wonderful that the angel of the Lord gives to Manoah are both derivatives of the very same Hebrew word. Of course, Manoah didn't know that at the time, but it is yet another confirmation of the true identity of this angel of the Lord who has refused to accept Manoah and his wife's food, but readily receives their worship, which is taken to a whole new level, of course, the moment the angel of the Lord is taken up to heaven in the flames from the altar as Manoah and his wife realize who they've just encountered. We see that later, certainly in verse 22. And so they fall on their faces before him and worship. Okay, God wasn't interested in them doing him a favor by cooking him a meal. He wanted their worship. And it's the very same for us today. When you're set apart by God, you're called to a life of worship. And yet sometimes I think that we believe we're doing God a favor anytime we do something nice for someone else or when we give an extra amount of money in the offering or when we agree to help out with some ministry at church or when someone we know has a need and we agree to help them. Listen, God isn't looking for favors from us. He's looking for worship from us. And all of those things I just mentioned can and should be acts of worship. It all depends upon the state of our hearts and minds when those offerings are made. Because when in your heart and your mind you're offering God a favor, the focus is on you. But when in your heart and mind you're offering God true worship, then the focus is on Him. You see, worship is not about going through some kind of religious motion or checking off a good deed for the day. It's about the posture of your heart and your mind when you offer something to God. 
Amos chapter 5 is a description of God's disposition toward his people when their behavior is religious, but their hearts and minds are far from him. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos 5, 21 through 24. You see, God is not interested in religious favors. He wants relentless worship, which begins inside of us as the Spirit of God within us stirs our own spirit to action, which is ultimately manifested in all that we do, whether it be singing or serving or giving or helping. Jesus said the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. He's seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, worship in spirit happens when the Spirit of Christ stirs our own spirit to express our love and devotion and gratitude and commitment to Him. That's where our hearts are engaged in worship. And to worship Him in truth is to worship in the truth of Christ, of who He is and what He's done because He is the truth. That is where our minds are engaged in worship, and so any worship that is performed solely on an emotional basis, all heart with the mind largely disengaged, right? That is not true worship according to Jesus. And any worship that is performed solely on the basis of reciting liturgy or doing some good religious deed, all in the mind with the heart largely disengaged, according to Jesus, that is not true worship. Because true worship is offered in both spirit and truth. True worship is to engage both our hearts and our minds to the point that it permeates everything that we think and feel and do. And that is when your singing and serving and giving and helping becomes true worship. And the reason it matters is because as a Christian, you're called to nothing less Okay, as a follower of Christ, you have this holy calling on your life that was there long before you were. And it is a calling to make disciples of Christ by the power of God using the supernatural gifts that he's given you. You understand, you, you were set apart by God for this very purpose before you ever existed, before you were born. God was preparing this world for you. He was preparing conversations. He was preparing relationships. He was preparing activities and opportunities and choices that are all a part of that holy calling on your life to make disciples. And so it is for that purpose that he set you apart. When God prepared that calling for you and his intention was that it would all be expressed through a life of holiness and obedience and worship. For that is what it means to be set apart. And if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're called to nothing less. 
Let's pray.